A Focus Summary of Part 1, Chapters 12 and 13 of Silas Marner While Godfrey Cass was drinking in the sweet presence of Nancy, his wife was walking slowly through the snow-covered lanes of Ravelow, carrying her child. She had planned this journey as an act of vengeance, the day Godfrey told her he would rather die than acknowledge her as his wife. She would appear at the Red House on New Year's Eve, in her dingy rags with her little child, and disclose herself to the squire as his eldest son's wife. She blamed Godfrey for her misery, though she knew the real cause for it was the demon opium to which she was enslaved. But his happiness made her bitter, and his repentance of their marriage stirred her vindictiveness. She had waited along the road under a warm shed, hoping in vain that the snow would cease to fall. Then she found herself belated in the rugged, snowy lanes, with her spirits failing. She longed for the only comfort she knew, and she drew the black file from her bosom and raised it to her lips. In that moment, mother's love pleaded with her to endure her pain rather than surrender to oblivion. But, in another moment, she had flung the empty file away. She walked along, more and more drowsily, still clutching her child. Soon she felt overwhelmed by a longing to lie down and sleep, and she sank down in a bed of snow with a furze bush for a pillow, the child slumbering on in her arms. But her fingers lost their tension, and the child awoke, letting out a cry of Mammy. When Mammy did not respond, the fickleness of infancy allowed the child to turn its attention to a bright, glancing light in the distance. Rising on its legs, it toddled through the snow, wrapped in an old grimy shawl, and followed the light to the open door of Silas Marner's cottage, right up to the warm hearth where his greatcoat had been spread out to dry. The warmth of the fire had a lulling effect, and the child sank down on Silas's coat and went to sleep. Silas Marner was there in the cottage, but he did not see the strange visitor come in. Often, at night, he would stand before the open door looking out, as if he thought his money might come back to him, or some sign of it might appear on the road. On this day, his neighbors had told him he must stay up to ring in the new year for good luck. Perhaps this had thrown him into a more agitated state than usual, and he went to his door again and again until he was arrested by one of his fits of catalepsy. When Silas regained consciousness, he closed his door, turned to the hearth, seated himself on a fireside chair, and looked down on the floor, where, to his shock, he thought he saw his gold lying there on the floor. His heart beat violently, and he leaned forward, stretching forth his hands. But instead of the hard coin, his fingers encountered soft, warm curls. He bent down to examine the marvel and found that it was a little girl. His mind reeled. Was this his sister, come back in a dream? Was it a dream? Then, when he was persuaded he wasn't dreaming, how had this child come in without his knowledge? With these thoughts came visions of his life in Lantern Yard, and he had a dreamy feeling that the child came as a message from that far-off life. It stirred old quiverings of tenderness and the presentiment of some power presiding over his life.
the child awakened and cried for its mammy, and Silas pressed it to him, uttering sounds of hushing tenderness. Through the next hour he fed the child some porridge sweetened with brown sugar, followed her as she staggered around so he might protect her from harm, and, when he observed that they were hurting her, pulled off her cold, wet boots. This prompted the thought that the child, whose appearance had seemed almost mystical, might have come through the snow. Silas went out the door, followed the child's tracks through the furze bushes, and soon came upon a human form, half-covered in snow. Meanwhile, at the Red House, the evening had advanced to a pitch of freedom and enjoyment, with bashfulness having passed into easy jollity. In the white parlor, Bob Cass was dancing while his father looked on proudly from the center of a group that had formed opposite the performer. Godfrey stood aloof from the crowd, so that he could avoid the squire's fatherly jokes about Nancy, and where he could gaze at her unobserved. When he raised his eyes from one of these long glances, he saw what appeared to be an apparition from the dead, his own child, carried in Silas Marner's arms. He hoped he was mistaken, but he joined the men who approached Silas, white-lipped, trembling, and desperate not to miss a word. The squire rose and asked Silas angrily why he had come. Silas replied that he had come to seek the doctor, because he had found a woman dead in the stone pits. Godfrey felt a throb of terror, not that she was dead, but that she might not be dead. Mr. Crackenthorpe volunteered to fetch Dr. Kimball, and meanwhile the ladies pressed forward, eager to know why Silas had come under such strange circumstances, and with whose child. Godfrey told them, with a terrible effort, that it seemed it was the child of some poor woman Silas had found in the snow. Mrs. Kimball told Silas he had better leave the child, but Silas, surprising himself with his sudden fervency, declared that he had a right to keep it. Kimball arrived, told the ladies to step aside, asked for some thick boots, and suggested someone fetch Dolly. Godfrey, eager for movement, volunteered, and the two men rushed out into the snow. When they arrived at the stone pits, Dolly, noticing Godfrey's thin shoes, urged him to go home. But he insisted on remaining, and Dolly praised him for his tender heart. Godfrey was too preoccupied even to be conscious of the undeserved praise. All he could think about was the sudden prospect of deliverance from his long bondage. After some time, Mr. Kimball came out of the cottage and reported that the woman, an emaciated, black-haired vagrant with a wedding ring, had been dead for several hours, and he told Godfrey to come along home. But Godfrey said he wanted to look at her. When, sixteen years later, he would tell the full story of this night, he recalled every line in the dead woman's face. He turned toward the hearth, where Silas was lulling the child, who was now perfectly calm and quiet. Her wide blue eyes looked up at Godfrey with no sign of recognition, and the father felt a strange mixture of regret and joy. He experienced a half-jealous yearning when the child turned her eyes back on Marner and pulled lovingly at his cheek. Godfrey asked Silas whether he intended to take the child to the parish the next day, 
and when Silas asked sharply whether they would make him take her, Godfrey was incredulous that an old bachelor like him should want to keep her. But Marner insisted he would keep this child, who came from, I don't know where, until anyone showed they had a right to her. Godfrey then fumbled in his pocket, gave Silas a half-guinea to buy the child some clothes, and hurried out of the cottage. Overtaking Mr. Kimball, Godfrey reported that he did not recognize the dead woman. And when Kimball asked what had brought Godfrey out in the snow in his dancing shoes, and teasingly suggested that Miss Nancy had been cruel to him, Godfrey seized on the excuse and said everything had been disagreeable, and he was eager to get away. White lies had become natural to him. Godfrey reappeared in the white parlor with a sense of relief and gladness, for now nothing stood between him and Nancy. Duncy might still betray him, but Duncy could be bribed to silence. With everything having worked out so well, Godfrey persuaded himself that he must have been less blameworthy than he thought. There was no use in telling Nancy the truth and throwing away his happiness. He would see that the child was cared for. It seemed it would be happy without owning its father. And its father would certainly be happier without owning the child.'